us. Uh, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1, that, that prologue uh, to John's gospel that we heard the beginnings of uh, last week. Is uh, We heard how the Word was with God in the beginning, that Jesus Christ is that Word that He always was, always has been, and still is, that He was the creator of all things. Through Him all things were made, and that He is the light of the world. Now, now this week, we're going to see the wonder of that word coming down to earth. Um, we're going to be starting at verse 14, and in fact, I'm going to read through verse 18, but we probably won't get much out of verse uh, 14 uh, this morning. So let's hear uh, God's word this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you bless now our time in your word? Would you truly help us to see Jesus? And this morning in particular, would you help us to truly see the wonder of the Christmas story? We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we get started this morning, I, I have a bit of a confession um, to make. Um, I am not the most enthusiastic person about Christmas. Um, I can maybe at times be a little bit of a Scrooge. I put up the lights and all that because that's what my dear wife would, would like and try to do it without too much grumbling, but I grumble a bit as I do it and you know, I could blame that on, you know, the commercialization of Christmas, right? How it's, you know, where, where is Jesus in, in the midst of all of it? But as, as I was contemplating the, the Christmas story this week and focusing on our text, I, I began to see more and more that I, I think it comes out of something in me, a problem inside of me, that I have a, a lack of wonder, a lack of amazement in the Christmas story. Uh, I was reading this week a, a, an essay written a few years back that I stumbled upon, and, and the guy starts talking about how, you know, there's like those magazine pictures of the perfect Christmas, especially in like the really elegant magazines, you know, like, you know, the perfectly put together Christmas, you know, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not too much Christmas stuff, and it's just everything's perfectly placed, and, and it just looks, you know, it looks so wonderful in the magazine, and you know, many of us maybe long for that, you know, oh, if I could just have that perfect kind of pristine, uh, elegant Christmas. And he says that as he looks at them, uh, these pictures of Christmas, these elegant pictures uh, of Christmas, he says, I, I love looking at them this time of year because they help me to grasp the deep, true meaning of the nativity. He sees that in these elegant Christmas pictures because he says, whatever Christmas is, it ain't this stuff. Oh, Santa, baby, it ain't this stuff. Give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing up and down on the lawn 
Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled to the rafters, the dozen creches my wife scatters wildly around our home like breadcrumbs leading back through the woods. Give me houses so lit up that their neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense that they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizon. Gingerbread cottages and Mouse King nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nutmegged that schoolchildren carolers cough and sputter as they try to manfully gulp it down. It says tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. And Christmas isn't tasteful. It isn't simple. It isn't clean. It isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded into the world. Now, whatever your decorating sensibilities may be, um, I think he's getting at something. The, the, the true richness, I think, that we should see in the Christmas story the wonder that you and I should have uh, of this wonderful occasion where God intrudes into the world in an incredible way. As as we read just a moment ago, the Word, the Word that we spoke about last week, Jesus Christ Himself, the Word became flesh. This is deep. John goes very deep. We, We saw it last week. We continue to see it this week. We can only begin to just mine the depth. What does that mean? The Word became flesh. That, that he becomes what we call incarnate, incarnate, in the flesh. What does that mean? I think before we dive too deeply into what it means, I think we need to make clear what it doesn't mean because I think we all kind of have sometimes some misperceptions about what that means, that, that, that God comes to earth. What does this mean that the word becomes flesh? It doesn't mean that somehow the second person of the Trinity changed in to a man. Okay, and, and somehow, therefore, that the second person of the Trinity is somehow like imprisoned in this earthly garb suddenly. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that he just kind of appears to be human. You know, and that, that's what people of John's day would have thought. They were, they were used to stories of, of Zeus, you know, like even walking around in, in human form. But it, Zeus never became a human or that, that somehow, and maybe some of us kind of do tend to believe this, that somehow what, what happens here and what we're, we're reading about is the word becomes flesh is that, that somehow Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gives up some of his divine attributes. He, he gives up some of what it is to be God. It's not that either. Or we begin to think that somehow he's some strange mixture, if you will, of divinity and humanity, that somehow they're mixed together and, and suddenly he becomes the superman. That's not what it is. In fact, as we're going to talk this morning, no. What we have happening here and what what John is describing is the God-man. Fully God. Fully man. John John Calvin, one of the early reformers, he he was dealing with this... These, some of these kind of issues in his days, and in particular, the, the idea that somehow, you know, that what Jesus is and what we have here is that um, God is somehow imprisoned in an earthly garb. And of that, he says this. He says, here, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way, get this, 
that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about on the earth, to hang upon the cross, and yet he continually filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Does your head begin to hurt as you think about that? He becomes flesh. Flesh, what, is, what, what does that word mean? It's not this, 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 you know, sometimes we just think of flesh as this physical existence. No, what John is intending here is he, as he's talking about what happens with the word, he, he says it, it, it refers really to the weaknesses and the frailties of what it is to be human. And, and by doing so, as Calvin says, he, he's, he's showing to what a despicable condition, Calvin says, that the second person of the Trinity comes down into. It's amazing. He, the Word, becomes man. Now that becomes, it doesn't mean, and we said this a second ago, it, it doesn't mean that he, he changed in to a man. Instead, this, that the, the second person of the Trinity, who always is, and who always has been and who always will be, began to be what he was eternally not. And yet at the same time, he's still fully that God that he's always been. Okay? There's an ancient saying that may be helpful and probably still make our heads scratch, but it says this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Is your head hurting yet? Jesus was not, therefore, now somehow like God minus a few things. He's still fully God plus, plus everything that that comes in with him taking on a human nature. He united to himself flesh. He he took on a human nature, becoming eternally the God-man, fully God and fully man. And he does all of that without giving up what is essential to either one of those things. He, he doesn't give up some of his divinity. He, he doesn't, then on the human side, give up some of what it means to be human. He doesn't give up any of those attributes. He's fully God and fully man. And as we think about that, it seems wild. And we want to say, well, how does that work? How can you be fully God and, and fully man and those things not all get mixed together and and?" How does that work? And here I'll rely on a, um, one of the great theologians of the past century. He says it's completely incomprehensible. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. So I'm not going to try here this morning to try to help you to understand how he is the God-man. What I want us to do is just look at it and wonder and be amazed at it. One Puritan put it this way. What a wonder it is. What a wonder it is that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world, and yet without any confusion. That the same person, I get that this is where it's just so wonderful to think of, that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in deity, an inexpressible sorrow in humanity, that a God upon the throne should be an infant in the cradle, that the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man, 
are such expressions of a mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon the earth and angels in heaven. Or as uh, C.S. Lewis put it in that last of the Narnia books where they, they are on their way, if you will, to the Narnia version of the new heavens and new earth and they arrive at this stable. It doesn't look like much from the outside, but they go in and they see that inside it's much more grander and much more greater than it ever appeared to be. And of that, Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That's what takes place, the Christmas story. That's what, that, that's what we see with the, with the incarnation, with the word. We read these words that the, the word became flesh. Something so much bigger than this world has, has come into it. Is Jesus, even as we think about these things, is he bigger for you as you think about, as you wonder about, as you, you contemplate this incarnation, this coming in the flesh, that the one who is wrapped in swaddling clothes is also the creator of the universe. And not only that, even at the moment that he is wrapped in swaddling clothes, Colossians 1.17 is still true of him. And what do we read in Colossians 1.17? But in him all things hold together, even as he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, holding everything together. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But in our passage, the wonder doesn't end there. There's even more to it. Because yes, the, the word became flesh, but what do we also read? And dwelt among us. Now, I've seen this multiple times. You've, you've probably seen it too, like when, when our, our loved ones have, have come to visit us, uh, grandparents in particular, um, come to visit. They're here with us for a while, and I remember several times like uh, taking them back to the airport and taking one or two of the kids uh, with me to the airport to, to drop off their Omar or their Grand Grey or their KK or whatever, to, to drop them off, and always, you know, they're, bye-bye, you know, there's the byes and stuff out the windows hollering at the, the, the grandparents as they're leaving, and then... Inevitably, what do you see as you look back in the rearview mirror but sadness on our kids because, and you ask them, of course you know the reason why, but you ask anyway and they say, well, my Oma isn't here anymore or my grand or my KK or wh whatever it is. You're, my grandparents no longer here and of course I'm sad because there's something really important about the presence of another, isn't there? There's a reason why we, we read the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, and we read that everything is good, right? Until we get to verse 18 of chapter 2, and we read that something's not good. It is not good that man should be alone. We're made for relationship. We're, we're made to be in the, the presence of others. We've, we've experienced this in incredible ways recently with COVID and how difficult it, it was, especially for a portion of the time, to be away from so many people. Zoom and FaceTime, they can be wonderful tools, but they don't hold a candle to actually having the presence of somebody with you. And, and so our, our passage doesn't just talk about the wonder that the Word became flesh. That's wonderful enough. But dwelt among us. Literally set up his tent among us. Came and lived among us in, in our midst. And this has 
a much greater and, and deeper meaning as you look back into history, as you, you look back into the Old Testament, right? Because where, where do we see tents in the Old Testament? Of course, whenever the Israelites are led out of Egypt and they find themselves in the wilderness wanderings, they find themselves living in tents. And in the midst of that, what does God say? Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? So that I may dwell in their midst. So, so, so that I might tabernacle in their midst, so that I might uh, put up a tent right there among them and live among them. It's, it's incredible. We see similar language in our passage this morning. What's amazing back then, I mean, don't forget the circumstances that were going on. God did what? He had, he had rescued the Israelites from slavery, right? He led them out with that, that pillar cloud and fire. He, he led them out. He, he led them across the, the Red Sea. He rescued them. And what do they do? They begin to grumble because the, the, the water is bitter. So he provides them fresh water. Then they start grumbling because they don't have enough food. And, oh, the food was better even when we were back in slavery. So what does he do? He provides food for them. Then again, they find themselves without water. And so what do they do? They grumble again. And God provides water from a rock. They see his incredible presence come down in Mount Sinai, right? You remember that? And Moses goes up, and Moses is gone for too long, so they create a calf that they can worship, a golden calf. And we're not talking about a ton of time. All of these things I'm talking about is like within a course of maybe a year. And despite the Israelites, despite their constant grumbling and complaining, what does God do? What happens by the end of Exodus, what does God do? He comes down and he tabernacles among them. They build that, that tabernacle, that, that place where he's going to reside in the Holy of Holies. And where is this tabernacle? Right there in the midst of them, in their camp. God comes and he sets up residence among them. It's an incredible picture. The God of the universe coming down to the Israelites and living right there in their midst. And John is telling us this morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This tent is far greater than that tabernacle John wants us to see. Because this isn't shrouded behind curtains and curtains and, and, and God, yes, in their camp, but behind the Holy of Holies where nobody can see. But instead, in the person of Jesus Christ, coming down, the great God, man, and, and, and they are able to see His glory, the glory of the one and only that's come from the Father, full of grace and truth incredible picture, isn't it? And so much more beautiful even than the wonder of that presence in, back in the book of Exodus. God now uh, sets up his tent among his people and, and, and he dwelt among us. Now, we need to make sure that we understand who that us is. John's talking about him and the other eyewitnesses, okay? He's, he's not talking about us in here. None of us were there. Uh, John's trying to communicate to us the wonder that he got to see the God-man walking around in earth. He got to see the glory of the one and only that came from the Father. And he wants to share that with you and I this morning and know the wonder of that. Now, we may look at that and we may think, well, man, I wish I had that. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had had the privilege of seeing the God-man walk around and... 
let's be careful and not think somehow God's left us alone or that somehow his presence doesn't remain with us. In fact, as we continue on in Scripture, we find something amazing, don't we? That, that we, the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we, the set of us, the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells among you. That God's presence is with us, the church. And let's not give short shrift to that. I think sometimes we do. We kind of shrug our shoulders at that because we don't quite understand it or, or know what it means. But that we have Christ present with us through His Holy Spirit. He is present in our midst. And, and not only in just in our midst as, as, as the church, as we see here in this passage, but in chapter 6. We read that it's also true of us individually, or do you not know that your body is uh, what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. A temple. What is the temple? That tabernacle, that, that, that tent. And so we have God's presence still with us today. Let's not miss it, and let's not miss the wonder of it. That we have that Spirit because the Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us. And the Word went to the cross so that he could continue to be present with us through his Holy Spirit. Jesus has done that for us. Now, let, let's understand that all of this, this, the Word becoming flesh, the Word dwelling among us, it's wonderful, it's incredible. But let's also understand that it's for a purpose. There's a reason for it, right? God doesn't just do this so that we will just be in awe and wonder that God himself comes down to earth. That God himself lives among us. And we read about it as we continue in verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And then verse 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He comes down, he becomes flesh, he dwells among us to bring grace to us. Now he refers here to Moses, right? Again, we get a, 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 a look into the past there briefly, right? And I want to make sure that we do understand here that John is not saying that, that Moses, in Moses' day, there wasn't grace there. We've already talked about the incredible grace of God setting up camp among his people. We could go on to, to talk about the myriad ways that through the sacrificial system and stuff, the, the people are given grace, right? But ultimately, I think what John wants to point us to is that with the coming of the Word and the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, something far greater is here. That was but a dim picture. That was but a shadow of what grace could look like. But in Christ True grace is poured out in ways that we could never imagine. The one who was fully God, the one who, who didn't lose any of that divinity or deity and remain fully God, becomes flesh in order that he can give it for us, you understand. That's why he did for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why He came to earth. That, 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 that's why He became flesh. That's why He, he dwelt among us. First Peter says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by His wounds you have been healed. That is able to take place. That, that takes place because the Word becomes flesh, because the second person of the Trinity is incarnated, because He comes to earth. This is an incredible gift, is it not? We read that, that, that what does Jesus bring? He brings grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. That is a grace that's unending. Like, you, you can't get to the depths of it. Like, you think you begin to understand it? And you find out that it goes far deeper than you could have ever imagined or ever contemplated. But let's also be careful here. Not to just think of this is some thing, thing that he purchased for us. It is. But do you see how John speaks about it in verse 14? He, Jesus himself is full of grace and truth. He's full of it. It's part of who he is. He, he, he is, in a sense, gr gr grace coming to us. And don't miss that he is the most incredible gift of all. You know, we'll, just a couple of days, Christmas morning will come and we'll start tearing open presents under our tree. Some of you will do it on Christmas Eve and that's wrong, but that's a whole side issue that we won't go into this morning. But we'll tear into gifts and... Now, now, this is where we'll struggle a bit because, in fact, I asked one of my kids this this week and they were struggling with the right answer. I think they know what the right answer is. I think we know what the right answer is. But as we open the gifts, what do we love more? The gift or the one who gave us the gift? Now, there may be times, and this is where our hearts show, right? Where we struggle to answer that. There are times where we love the gift more than we do the, the giver. And we think somehow that that gift is going to bring us greater fulfillment than the giver is, don't we? Do, do we struggle with that? Maybe it's just me. Um, and as we contemplate what the Word brings to us, what, what Jesus brings to us, what, the wonder of the incarnation of, of what He does for us is, as He comes as the one who is full of grace and truth, Let's not miss it. Let's not think that the prize, that the, that the gift in and of itself is just this thing called grace. Okay? It's wonderful and it's great. It's incredible. I have it here in all caps so I don't miss it. Grace is incredible. Grace upon grace, we talked about a minute ago, it just overpouring it and keeps coming out. But understand that that grace is given For something, in a sense, even greater, I think. For an even greater purpose. So, what is that purpose? Grace is given as a means to, 
the thing that is most important, I think, and the gift that is, is most crucial, and that is Jesus giving of himself. Sometimes we focus so much on that gift. We, we miss the God-man who has come. You see, there's a sense, I mean, it, it, John 1.14 is incredible. That God becomes incarnate. That, that's mind-boggling, as we've already talked about, right? And, and then that, 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 that God-man, he, he, in Jesus Christ, he dwells among us, he, that he walked around on the earth. It's incredible. It's awesome. But do you know what? That's not the most incredible picture in a sense of all. In a sense, that points us to, to something that's still future for us. An even greater future that we read about in Revelation 21. <laughs> what do we read? Behold, this is the end game. This is where all things are going. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Where does God eternally places, put up his tent? The dwelling of place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God will be with them as their God. The God that, that once walked around in the days of Adam in the garden with him. The one who made himself present and led the Israelites through that, that pillar cloud that we talked about. The one who came down and, and set up camp among the Israelites in that tabernacle. And then eventually in the temple. The, the one who made himself present by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Who, who came in the form of a servant being born in human likeness. It's all so incredible. But one day, we're told, this is the end game and this is the purpose of it all. Well, one day, he will set up his throne on earth for all of eternity. This is, I want us to see, part of the wonder of the incarnation. God doesn't just become incarnate to save us, okay? He does so, so that we can get to the end game, so that we can live eternally with him. The greatest gift isn't just eternal life. That sounds incredible and heretical, maybe even coming from the pulpit at the moment, right? As incredible as that is, the greatest gift is that we get to be with him for all of eternity. Do you see? Not, not that we get out of some sort of eternal punishment, or not that we just get the blessings of, of being in heaven or eventually in the new heavens and the new earth, but that we get to be with him. He himself is the ultimate gift. John ends his gospel with these words towards the end of it. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants us to, to look at the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of God in the second person, the Trinity, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. He wants us to, to look at it 
and see the wonder of it. See it as this incredible sign that, that, that points to something even greater that we would believe what that word came to do. That he took on flesh. He dwelt among us for a purpose. To ultimately to, to go to the cross, to die for us, to rise again so that we might be able to rise with him as well. It, it's incredible, it's all standing, but ultimately, ultimately, so that we can be with him, present with him for all of eternity. As we think about the wonder that is Christmas, the wonder of God intruding into earth. Does it leave you in awe a bit? Does it leave you in awe that the God of the universe would want this for you? That he want, would want to be with you for all of eternity? It's incredible. It's astounding. It should leave us in awe, and I pray it does you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, would you help us to look at the Christmas story, to look at the wonder of your incarnation, and to be left in awe to be left in awe that you have come down to earth. Have come down to earth in such a humbling way that you gave your life for us so that we could be with you for eternity. We thank you for your incredible grace in our Savior Jesus Christ, that grace upon grace that's never ending, that you so loved us, that you gave of your very own Son, so that we, so that we can have our internal inheritance with you. Would you help us to believe? Would you help to leave us in wonder and awe of our great God who has come down to earth? We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.